L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. This is part two of our autumn installment of Unearthed. Part one was last week. If you're like, wait, what day of the week is it? This is normally a two-parter on Monday and Wednesday. Well, we did it weird this time. (laughs) Uh, This time around, we have some repatriations and some shipwrecks, some medical stuff. There was a whole lot of Viking stuff. We're going to start, as so often, with the potpourri. Dun-dun-dun. So part two of Unearth usually starts off with some stuff that we had some hard times categorizing. That's what we're doing this time around as well. First, one of the biggest news stories of these three months involved research into 17 skeletons that were found in a well in Norwich, England in 2004. Radiocarbon dating suggests that these people died between 1161 and 1216, and DNA from six of the skeletons suggests that they had Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. So together, this suggests that these were victims of an anti-Semitic massacre that was carried out by Christian soldiers who were on their way to Jerusalem for the Third Crusade in the year 1190. And then this massacre also had connections to the blood libel, or that's the term for allegations against individual Jews or Jewish people as a whole involving murders and ritual uses of blood. This idea is both widespread and false. It's 
like one of the biggest anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. The first documented appearance of the blood libel was in Norwich in 1144, after a boy named William died and Jewish people were accused of murdering him. This research was published as an open access paper in the journal Current Biology. And it also looks at the prevalence of genetic diseases that continue to be associated with Ashkenazi Jewish ancestry. The genomic sequencing involved in this research suggests that a population bottleneck that contributed to these genetic traits took place prior to the 12th century, which is between 400 and 600 years earlier than was previously believed. Moving on, archaeological work at the site of the Battle of Waterloo started in 2015, but then it had to be paused at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. Work has resumed this year, and researchers have found bones from amputated human limbs, as well as the bones of three horses and what may be a complete skeleton. It's likely that all of these were buried together quickly in an effort to reduce the spread of disease at a nearby field hospital. Although thousands of people were killed at the Battle of Waterloo, not very many remains have been found. One prevailing idea is that their bones were sold to make fertilizer. According to a paper published in the Journal of Conflict Archaeology in June, this may be the case, but further study is needed. Next, archaeologists in China's Shanxi province have found a small stone carving of a cocoon, probably a silkworm cocoon, This is really small, only about 2.8 centimeters long and 1.2 centimeters wide, and it's probably around 5,200 years old. This is one of a lot of objects related to silkworms in some way that have been found in the area over the last century, and that includes some actual well-preserved cocoons. So this all helps document the silk industry's early history. Massive and deadly flooding struck eastern Kentucky at the end of July. One of the buildings that has faced extraordinary damage is Apple Shop, which is a nonprofit cultural center that houses a huge archive of Appalachian literature, film, art, photographs, oral histories, diaries, records, and other irreplaceable items. About 80% of Apple Shop's film reels and audio and videotapes have been affected by this flood. Apple Shop is also home to a media institute whose headquarters were submerged in the flood. At this point, recovery efforts involving all these archival materials are still ongoing, and it'll probably take months or maybe even a year or more to just get a thorough sense of exactly what has been affected and what can be salvaged or restored. Apple Shop is not the only organization to be affected by this flood. Another is the Hindman Settlement School archives, which also include photographs, diaries, correspondence, musical instruments, and other historical collections. Uh, And our last kind of random inclusion in this is that archaeologists working at Vindolanda have found a mouthpiece for a musical instrument called a cornu, buried under the floor of what was the officer's clubhouse, So a cornu is a long horn that's shaped in a single curve. Sometimes people describe it as shaped like the letter G. So if you're playing it, the body of the instrument curls down from your mouth to roughly the hip level, and then it curves back up behind you so that the end with the bell on it is facing forward up above your head. This mouthpiece is made from a copper alloy, and it dates back to sometime around the year 120, and curators at Vindolanda have described it as incredibly rare. 
Also, the Vindalanda Trust, Newcastle University, and games development studio Creative Assembly have released a browser-based Vindalanda adventure game that is free to play at vindalandaadventure.com. I really wanted to stop what I was doing. (laughs) (laughs) Play this browser-based game. Uh, And I was like, nope, stop. Get back to work. You got to get this finished. Uh, Moving on, quite a few repatriations have made headlines over the last few months. We are not going to even talk about all of the ones that I had bookmarked because there were so, so many. And we're going to start with some that involve repatriations involving ancestors being returned to their indigenous and aboriginal communities first. Earlier this year, a committee at the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks made the just horrifying and appalling discovery of ancestral remains in the university's collections, some of them in cardboard boxes that didn't have any identifying information on them. The university started reaching out to indigenous tribes and nations to return these ancestors and objects that are still in the university's collections as well, So far, 13 different tribes have been contacted, and that number may continue to grow. And to be clear, this is not at all unique to the University of North Dakota in Grand Forks. We have talked on the show before about the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, or NAGPRA, which was passed in 1990. More than 30 years later, there are still thousands and thousands of cultural and religious items and ancestors in museums and other institutions all around the United States. The Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History has also made some returns to Aboriginal nations in Australia. There have been a few over the years. In this particular case, these remains became part of the museum's collections in the early 20th century. Two ancestors were returned directly to the Narunga and Garna nations with representatives from those nations traveling to Washington, D.C. to escort them back home. 23 others are currently in the care of the Australian government until they can determine exactly what nation they belong to. In terms of artwork and other objects, Germany physically returned two Benin bronzes to Nigerian authorities, while also making Nigeria the owner of roughly 1,100 objects in four different German museums. As of when the announcement was made at the start of July, those objects were still in Germany. Those museums and the government of Nigeria still need to negotiate their return. It's possible that the negotiations will lead to some of the items staying in German museums, essentially on loan. The two items that were physically returned as part of all this were both depictions of a previous Oba of the Kingdom of Benin, and they were selected as sort of representative samples of the larger collection. So it's like these two things have been returned with the promise of ongoing negotiations for those more than a thousand others. The Horniman Museum in London has also announced that it will return 72 items from the Kingdom of Benin to Nigeria, the first time a government-funded institution in Britain has decided to do so. This includes 12 brass plaques that are considered part of the Benin bronzes, as well as a variety of religious objects and everyday items and other pieces of artwork. The Victoria and Albert Museum has returned part of a marble sarcophagus to Turkey. The Sidamara sarcophagus dates back to about the year 250, and the part that was returned is known as the Head of Eros. It is just what it sounds like. It is the head of a figure of Eros that was 
on part of the sarcophagus. British military consul general Charles Wilson had found this sarcophagus in 1882 and then took the head of Eros back with him to London. The sarcophagus with the returned head is now on display at the Istanbul Archaeological Museums. Harvard University has returned a pipe tomahawk belonging to Chief Standing Bear to the Ponca tribe of Nebraska. Standing Bear had given the pipe tomahawk to attorney John Lee Webster as a gift following their victory in the federal court case of United States X-Rail Standing Bear versus George Crook. This was an 1897 landmark civil rights case that affirmed indigenous people's personhood. Standing Bear's interpreter in this case was Suzette LaFleche, also known as Bright Eyes, who was previous podcast subject Susan LaFleche Picot's sister. After Webster died, this pipe tomahawk was sold to a private collector, and then it changed hands several other times before eventually winding up in the collection at Harvard. It was in the collection of the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology, which has come up on the show before. Standing Bear's descendants, other members of the Ponca tribe, members of other indigenous nations, and the Nebraska legislature had all been advocating for it to be returned for more than a year. New Mexico's Albuquerque Museum has returned a collection of items dating back 2,300 to 2,500 years to Mexico, including bowls, sculptures, and a figurine. These items had been sitting in a box in storage for about 15 years, and they had been donated to the museum, and the dealer who sold them to that donor back in 1985 had cards tracing their origins to roadside purchases in Mexico and dealers in New England, but their provenance was very vague. And it was basically like, these came from one of these two places, but there's no specifics. The Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. has returned a gospel manuscript that was in its collections to the Greek Orthodox Church. This manuscript had been looted from a Greek monastery during World War I. The Museum of the Bible is also currently investigating its collections. Stolen and inauthentic artifacts have come up as part of its collections in previous installments of Unearthed. It's, there have been a number of these. And lastly, before we take a break, the J. Paul Getty Museum in Los Angeles has returned a group of nearly life-size terracotta figures known as Orpheus and the Sirens to Italy. These figures date back to the 4th century BCE, and they were valued at roughly $8 million and considered some of the most important items in the museum's collection. J. Paul Getty bought these figures in 1976, but they had been illegally excavated and exported from Italy. We're going to take a quick sponsor break, and then we'll talk about some diseases. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. 
I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode, hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. Next, we have several discoveries related to medicine and diseases. So first, computer-assisted microtomography, a.k.a. a micro-CT scan of a fossilized skull dating back about 100,000 years, suggests that the hunter-gatherer this skull belonged to experienced chronic ear infections and a disease called labyrinthitis ossificans, which caused this person's semicircular canals to calcify, That meant they probably had both vertigo and hearing loss. This person doesn't seem to have lived very long beyond the onset of the illness, possibly only a few months, although it's not fully clear whether this was related to the disease or if the person simply wasn't able to get enough food due to the effects of their illness. Next, herpes simplex virus 1, the virus that causes cold sores, is extremely common. As many as 3.7 billion people, that's billion with the B people around the world have it. Until recently, this virus is believed to have existed for as long as 50,000 years, although the earliest direct genetic evidence of it dated back to just 1925. 
New research suggests that HSV-1 is much younger, maybe only 5,000 years old, and the study's authors suggest that it might have started to spread along with migrations from the Eurasian steppes more westward into Europe, and that it might have spread as more people were introduced to the social practice of kissing. Oh, Imogene Recton would be like (laughs) shaking her fist going, I told you! (laughs) To be clear, the samples studied in this research are not that old. The oldest viral DNA sample that was part of this research dates back to about 1,500 years ago. Instead, the researchers looked at four DNA samples, the only four they found out of 3,000 archaeological finds they studied, and compared how the virus had mutated over time. Then they use that analysis to estimate the virus's earlier origins. Yeah, that doesn't mean that only four of those 3,000 people had cold sores. It's very tricky to get DNA from really, really old remains. Next, researchers... This actually has a bit about along those same lines. Researchers studying a 1,000-year-old set of skeletal remains have found the earliest documented evidence of Klinefelter syndrome, which occurs when a person's sex chromosomes are XXY. This research involved DNA analysis, which was pretty difficult because of the condition of the DNA they were able to retrieve. It was, like, really fragile and kind of incomplete. But the skeleton itself was very well-preserved, so they also analyzed the skeleton for physical traits that are associated with Klinefelter syndrome. This included the shape of the person's lower jaw, and that is a trait known as maxillary prognathism. Next, we've talked about various research about parasite infections throughout history, and most of the time, it kind of boils down to, yep, people had parasites. But according to research that was announced in August, medieval clergy may have been more likely to have intestinal parasites than lay people living in the same area, even though, in general, members of the clergy had better hygiene and often had more sophisticated systems for managing their bodily waste. This research involved examining the soil around the pelvises of human remains at burial sites, looking for evidence of parasite eggs. And there were parasite eggs in significantly more grave sites that belonged to monks and friars than at the other grave sites. So one possible reason for this would be that men living in monasteries and friaries grew their own food and also used their own waste as fertilizer for those crops, which then would have basically spread any parasitic foodborne stuff around among them. Yeah. Right, gross. I put gross there in the outline. Yuck! There are also some contrary opinions on this. In many orders, monks took vows of poverty and were expected to live off of charitable donations, not food that they grew themselves. So it's also possible that people were donating lower-quality meat that they didn't want to eat to the monks. Also gross, just a different kind. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The outcome in either way. Uh, not not Yuckaroozles. good. And in some more parasite news, research published in the journal Nature Communications in July has looked at archaeological evidence of whipworm infections using fossilized feces from Viking settlements in Denmark and elsewhere. Whipworm still exists today, and while it's mostly not an issue in wealthier countries, it affects as many as 500 million people in other parts of the world. This 
research was kind of looking at trends in the infections around all of these different places through fossilized Viking poop. Those Viking whipworms are a good segue to some more Viking stuff, of which there was a preponderance. First, two different metal detectorists, independently of each other, found three pieces of a Viking sword hilt in Stavanger, Norway. The blade has not been found, but the hilt is ornately decorated in gold and silver with both geometric patterns and animal themes. Only about 20 of this type of sword have been found in Norway. It's being conserved at the Museum of Archaeology at the University of Stavanger. Speaking of the Museum of Archaeology at the University of Stavanger, the museum recently received a donation of jewelry belonging to a Viking woman, including brooches and a string of more than 50 beads. Some of those beads were foiled in silver and gold. It is possible that this is jewelry that should have been in a boat grave that the museum examined in 1955. This was a woman's grave It contained an axe, a heckle, a shield boss, scissors, and an iron weaving sword. But the jewelry that they would have expected to have been in this grave, uh, based on what they had seen at similar burial sites, that was gone. If so, what a wild coincidence that somebody donated this jewelry that the museum expected to find in 1955 and did not. Bum, bum, bum. Uh... (laughs) There is another surprising Viking find, and that is a box of costume jewelry that was sold at auction, which turned out to contain a gold ring dating to the Viking Age. The buyer, realizing they had something unique, contacted archaeologists. This was probably a man's ring based on its size, but it's still not clear where it came from. It was just in a box. and then, <laughs> Even it. though they think that's when it came from, like it's dated to that period. Like we don't really have a lot of very comparable rings to compare it to. A hiker in Sweden stumbled over a brooch while setting up their tent. And then this brooch turned out to be about 1,200 years old. So when archaeologists went back to the site where this tent had been put up to try to investigate it further, they found another brooch and also evidence of a cremation burial. There are other Viking-era graves that have been found in this general area, but this is actually the first one that's believed to have belonged to a woman. Research published in July concludes that high-status Vikings wore beaver fur as a mark of status. Beavers do not live in Denmark, so beaver fur probably would have been seen as a luxury item. The team concluded that the furs they were looking at were from beavers based on protein analysis, because the samples that they had no longer contained usable DNA. And lastly, archaeologists from Secrets of the Ice and the Museum of Cultural History in Oslo have found an iron arrowhead dating back to the Viking era. They found this arrowhead during an exploratory survey, and they had undertaken that to look for objects that may have been exposed by melting ice. Secrets of the Ice has come up on Unearthed before. That's basically their whole thing, is like looking for things that has been revealed as ice melts. This is a three-bladed arrow, and it's a little broader than is typical for Viking combat arrowheads. Like, you would need a narrower arrowhead to to pierce somebody that was wearing mail. Uh, so there's like a little bit of unanswered questions around what this arrowhead might have been used for. Next up, we have some art. 
the Griffith Center for Social and Cultural Research and Australian Research Center for Human Evolution has been working with Aningai traditional owners to study and interpret rock art at a rock shelter known as Marawanga. They've identified 10 clusters of designs that seem to have been created in an intentional ordered sequence, which members of the Aboriginal community have identified as a Seven Sisters dreaming sequence. The dream time is a term that anthropologists coined to describe the worldview and cultural and religious oral traditions of Aboriginal peoples in Australia, which is also used by contemporary Aboriginal people when discussing these ideas in English. So far, this is the only known rock shelter that has one continuous narrative depicted along its entire length. Next, the Victoria and Albert Museum has been conserving an 18th century portrait and also the silk waistcoat that the portrait subject was wearing when it was painted, which I just thought was really cool. The painting is by Marco Benefial, and it depicts Edward Curtis of Mardike House, who's wearing this brocade waistcoat with the sleeves of his outer jacket also faced in the same material. So he's got like a little matching sleeve facing and waistcoat on. The brocade includes both a stylized shell pattern and pink roses with yellow leaves. The Victoria and Albert Museum acquired the painting and the waistcoat at the same time, but the outer jacket that's being worn in the portrait does not seem to have survived. Oh, so dreamy. Restoration work on Vermeer's The Milkmaid has revealed original elements of the picture that the artist later painted over, including a jug holder on the wall and a fire basket at the milkmaid's feet. Unlike the last time we talked about uncovered items in a Vermeer painting, these don't seem to have been things that were painted over decades later, but evidence of an earlier draft in his artistic process. All this conservation work has been going on in advance of a landmark exhibition planned at the Ricks Museum next year. Yeah, I had a, I was like, why do we keep having Vermeer stuff? Oh, because it's amazing. That's why. Getting ready for this whole big thing. (laughs) The Cincinnati Art Museum and the University of Cincinnati have been working together to determine whether a decorative tassel that was part of a dancing horse sculpture in the museum's collection is an authentic part of the artwork. This terracotta horse is about 1,300 years old, and then the tassel gave it kind of a unicorn-like appearance. While the tassel looked like it was made of the same material that the rest of the horse was, researchers at the university determined that it was made of plaster, not terracotta, totally different material, and it was held on there with animal glue. The area under the glue was smooth, and that suggested that this was a later addition and not like a repair of an original tassel that had been broken off. So conservators have removed it. It now looks like a horse instead of a unicorn. (laughs) I put a sticker on it. (laughs) And to cap off our artwork... Several mosaics have been unearthed over the past few months. A team from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill has uncovered many mosaics at the site of an ancient Jewish synagogue in Lower Galilee. This year's discoveries include the first known depictions of Deborah and Jael, who are described in the Book of Judges, and a mosaic showing a hare, a fox, a leopard, and a wild boar eating wild grapes. These mosaics are about 1,600 years old. 
Also, a team at the ancient city of Syedra in modern Turkey has found a floor mosaic depicting the mythological hero Heracles, and a Palestinian farmer in Gaza found a huge Byzantine-era floor mosaic depicting birds and animals while planting olive trees. Yeah, I, I like that one because the guy was like, I planted these olive trees and they didn't root what has happened. And it turned out there was this giant <laughs> this beautiful mosaic art under there. underneath the ground. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to take a quick break and come back with some edibles and potables. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. Have a ton of questions about LASIK? You're not alone. That's why we created LASIK.com, one place where you can go to find every answer to every question on your mind. Like, how much does LASIK cost? How long does recovery take? How do I find a doctor? If you've been thinking about LASIK, go to LASIK.com now. Yeah, LASIK.com. Easy to remember, so you know where to start. L-A-S-I-K, LASIK.com. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. Happy Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender-inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit-tested for all-day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotels has a stay for any traveler you want to be with 22 brands and over 7,400 locations. Whether you're a business traveler, a family road tripper, someone who wants to seek out history and maybe make your own, or just planning a quick getaway, Choice Hotels has a stay for any you. Like a Cambria Hotel, where you can be a cocktail connoisseur and sip locally inspired craft beverages at downtown locations in the center of it all. This is a fun way to visit cities with a lot of history and a lot of fun in mind. Or a Radisson Hotel for for all our productivity powerhouses out there. With flexible workspaces and on-site restaurants, you'll get the most out of your work trip. You'll get the coffee, the Wi-Fi, and the work done. And we can't forget about comfort hotels. Imagine you're a family road tripper, waking up in your big, spacious room and then heading down to a free hot breakfast for the entire family, including waffles. So you'll be well-fed and ready for the day's adventure, even if that's just relaxing. After that, you're spending all afternoon relaxing by the pool. You deserve it. What are you waiting for? Join Choice privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you. Book directly at choicehotels.com where travels come true.
Okay, we have just a few edibles and potables this time around. First, ongoing work at the Saqqara Necropolis in Egypt has uncovered several blocks of white cheese. This cheese dates back to uh, sometime between 688 and 525 BCE during the 26th dynasty. I have various curiosities about, like, what the look and texture of this cheese is now, and I did not find good answers. Delicious! <laughs> Archaeologists working north of Moravia in the Czech Republic have unearthed an entire medieval kitchen. Their finds there include an oven, a hearth, ceramic vessels, and a wooden spoon. Some of the pots were intact with their lids still on, with several looking as though they had just been cleaned and left to dry on the hearth. These probably date back to about the 15th century from a house that probably belonged to a relatively affluent family. Although since the home was near the town walls, it probably was not one of the richest families in the area. Next, in the ancient Mediterranean, a plant known as silphion or silphium was prized as a food source and a medicine and an aphrodisiac. In the first century, Pliny the Elder claimed that the last surviving stalk of this plant had been given to the emperor Nero, who had eaten it. Researchers in Turkey, though, believe they may have found living descendants of this plant in the form of Firula judiana, which is a plant with a ginseng-like root that produces very bright yellow flowers. This is not the first plant put forth as a possibility for the long-lost sylphium or a related descendant plant. There have been at least three other candidates proposed since the early 19th century. While some researchers say that this one seems promising, others point out that it was discovered hundreds of miles away from where sylphium was historically described as growing. Next, research involving 7,000 samples of animal fat residues from more than 500 sites around Europe suggests that Europeans developed the ability to digest milk into adulthood in response to things like disease and famine. The ability to digest milk even after being weaned is known as lactase persistence, and it went from being a pretty uncommon genetic trait to one that was pretty widespread in Europe over just a few thousand years, which sounds like a long time, but it's a pretty short time from an evolutionary standpoint. Earlier hypotheses have focused mainly on milk's nutritional benefits, like the idea that people who were getting more calcium or other nutrients from milk had an advantage over people who didn't, which led people with lactase persistence to survive longer. But this work suggests that people often had to drink milk because of a shortage of other types of food. And in times of famine or disease, the problems that come along with drinking milk while lactose intolerant, like cramps and diarrhea, became life-threatening instead of just uncomfortable and inconvenient. And lastly, a dig in Bulgaria has found the ancient equivalent of a refrigerator. This is a large chamber lined in ceramic slabs dating back to the first century. This was at the site of a military camp and still contained some animal bones that showed evidence of cooking, as well as a small part of a bowl and some pieces of charcoal. It's possible that that bowl and charcoal was really part of a sensor that was used to burn materials to keep pests out of that fridge. We are closing out this installment of Unearthed with Shipwrecks. 
a 13th century shipwreck located off the coast of Dorset, England, has been added to England's national heritage list. This wreck is called the Mortar Wreck, named for the mortars that were part of its cargo. In addition to the mortars, which were used to grind grain into flour, the ship was also carrying cooking pots, mugs, and carved gradestones made from Purbeck limestone. The ship was carrying uncarved stone as well. This is England's oldest known protected wreck that has a surviving hull, and shipwrecks of this age in general are really rare in the waters around England. It was discovered a couple of years ago, but now it is being threatened by shifting currents that have cleared away some of the sand that was protecting parts of the hull. A team doing routine measurements in the Trava River in Germany in 2020 discovered what has turned out to be a 400-year-old shipwreck. Most of the cargo was still there as well, including about 150 barrels. Those barrels contained quicklime, which was used to make mortar for building. It's not yet known why the ship sank, but it's possible that it ran aground during a tight turn in the river and was just too badly damaged to remain afloat. Dives to photograph and study the wreck started in late 2021, and it is not yet clear what's going to happen to the wreck. It's possible that it could be removed from the river and preserved. Sort of shipwreck adjacent, local lore around the Virginia Barrier Islands has maintained that the Chincoteague ponies that live on the islands are descended from horses that survived a shipwreck sometime around 1750 and swam to the island when the ship went down. But another argument has been that they were descended from runaway livestock that were brought to the island much later. Research published in July suggests that the shipwreck story may be the right one. Thanks to DNA research linking these horses to a fossilized horse tooth found in the Caribbean at the site of the city of Puerto Real on the island of Hispaniola. Both this fossilized tooth and the horses also have connections to Bronze Age ponies from Spain. This horse tooth is also surprising on its own. There's lots of evidence of cows in and around Puerto Real, but horses were a lot less common so rare that this tooth was originally thought to be a cow's tooth instead of a horse's. Fishers off the coast of the Netherlands hauled up a carved wooden head in one of their nets, likely a figurehead from a warship dating back to the 16th or 17th century, possibly from the 80 Years' War. This figurehead is in the shape of a man's head wearing a Phrygian cap. The crew of the fishing ship nicknamed it Barry. <laughs> this is the second time in this two-parter of unearthed, where the crew working with something gave it a nickname. Most likely, this figurehead wound up buried in sediment at the bottom of the seafloor. Otherwise, marine organisms probably would have eaten through it. It does look like it's in very good condition. The crew kept the head in an eel tub after they pulled it out of the water so that it would not dry out and start to decompose before they could make it back to shore. A shipwreck found off the coast of Patagonia may be the whaling ship Dolphin, which set sail from Rhode Island in 1850 and never returned. The remains of the wreck started to emerge from the sediment in 2004, and although researchers thought it might be the Dolphin, confirming that ID was a challenge. In 2019, the team decided to analyze the tree rings from the ship's timbers, and those rings suggested that the wood was from white oak and old-growth yellow pine trees, and that the last of them were cut in 1849. Most likely, the oak came from Massachusetts, while the pine came from somewhere in the southeast. 
This identification is not 100% confirmed yet, but the tree rings do suggest that this ship would have been built along the same time as the dolphin was. It's kind of like a circumstantial connection at this point. In 1912, the SS Masaba tried to warn the RMS Titanic of the iceberg that the Titanic later hit, causing the purportedly unsinkable ship to go down on its first voyage. While the Titanic did receive the message, the message never made it to the main control room. The Masaba continued to operate for another six years before being struck by a German torpedo during World War I. Twenty people aboard died when it sank. A team using multi-beam sonar has now positively identified the wreck of the Masaba in the Irish Sea during a sweep of the area that also pointed to the remains of more than 270 wrecks. These wrecks are all detailed in a newly released book titled Echoes from the Deep. Okay, so this next thing is not a whole shipwreck, but something that may point to one. A crew in the southern North Sea off the coast of England has recovered a large anchor that's likely somewhere between 1,600 and 2,000 years old. It's large enough that it probably would have come from a vessel weighing between 500 and 600 tons. Although the dating on it is not confirmed yet, it's possible that it was a Roman vessel, and if so, it would have been from one of the largest ships in the Roman merchant fleet. This was actually pulled out of the water in 2021, but just announced in September. And lastly, we've previously talked about a shipwreck off the coast of Rhode Island that may be Captain Cook's Endeavor. In August, it was announced that wood from the wreck shows evidence of a worm-like mollusk known as shipworm. There's still some debate about whether this ship really is the Endeavor and also whether the possibility that it could have been should have been announced the way that it was. This was a whole deal when it first was announced. But the evidence of shipworm in the wood has led to calls for what's left of the wreck to just be aggressively preserved. So much unearthed this year. It was a lot. (laughs) Uh, I have a thought about a recurring thing that maybe should be its own category going forward. Yeah. I'll talk about it on On Friday. Do you have listener mail for us? I do. I have listener mail from Carol who wrote to us with something to include in Unearthed and then I forgot to write it down. And then I was looking for listener mail to read and went, oh, I should read that because I should have put this in this episode. This is, I said, from Carol. Carol wrote, Dear Holly and Tracy, hello from Canada. This article came across my newsfeed this morning. I thought it would share it with you as something for the next Unearthed installment in case you haven't seen it yet. And the headline of this article is Why a Small British Museum Went Out of Its Way to Repatriate Haida Nation Artifacts. And this is about how, as that headline suggests, a small British museum connected with the Haida Gwaii Museum in British Columbia to repatriate indigenous artifacts that were in their possession, along with the growing movement to reclaim artifacts as a form of healing and reconciliation. So I read through this article, and it it talks about basically how the museum had these items in their collection but had very little information about where they had come from. And so it took a lot of effort to pinpoint what nation they needed to go back to and then to return it to the uh, to the Haida Gwaii Museum. Um, 
Carol then moves on to say, now for Lunar Beavers. Months back in May, I was listening to the Margaret Lucas Cavendish episode when you began describing her blazing world and the anthropomorphic creatures, including Birdmen. I immediately thought Lunar Beavers and the Birdmen in the Great Moon Hoax. I wonder whether the creator of the Moon Hoax drew inspiration from Margaret. The connection certainly had me laughing at the thought. Thank you, Holly and Tracy. You bring me joy. I find myself smiling about something in every episode, whether it's ridiculous moments in the story or your commentary. Actually, a lot of it is your commentary. I enjoy your perspectives and both of your personalities. I feel your people I would really enjoy spending time with. And thank you for shaping my perspectives. I very much appreciate your willingness to say we don't really know in reference to historical information. I've come to have a more critical mind when reading the news and references to the past, asking myself, do they know for sure? Thank you. It reminds me that there is beauty in mystery and in the not knowing. So Carol also included pictures of Kitty Cat. Uh, This cat's name is Momo. It's so Um, cute. Yes, Momo is extremely cute. Um, (laughs) Momo is is orange and white and is shown with this little tiger. And Carol's son moved to a city far away and really missed the cat. And uh, so Momo is a very chilled out, relaxed relaxed cat, um, but can sound really vocal. And so they recorded Momo having a conversation and purring and, like, inserted them into the stuffed tiger. So when you hear, when you squeeze the tiger, you can hear the sounds that the cat usually makes. And so this was a present for Carol's son last Christmas. And I found that whole idea to be incredibly adorable. It reminds me a little bit of when Patrick and I were dating and leave, leave, living in two different states, and we had this app that would let us put our thumb on the screen and the other person could put their thumb on the screen. He'd be putting her thumbs on the screen at the same time. It's very cute. Uh, So anyway, thank you so much, Carol, for sending this. I had not seen this article. And then I forgot to bookmark it along with the bookmarks to go into Unearth. So I'm glad I got to read this email to include this also. If you would like to send us a note about this, or any other podcast or history podcast at iHeartRadio.com. And we're all over social media at Missed in History. So you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app or wherever else you like to get podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. If your glucose alerts and readings from the G7 do not match symptoms or expectations, use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop.
Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping? Then give your business the edge it needs with USPS Ground Advantage Shipping from the United States Postal Service. Keep everything simple with clear upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. It's time to turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote.